And the reason that this gets really, really tricky is because religious trauma happens in the very communities that you're meant to be the safest in. Welcome to a Healthy Push podcast. I'm Shannon Jackson, former anxiety sufferer turned adventure mom and anxiety recovery coach. I struggled with anxiety, panic disorder, and agoraphobia for 15 years. And now I help people to push past the stuff that I used to struggle with. Each week, I'll be sharing real and honest conversations along with actionable and practical steps that you can take to help you push past your anxious thoughts, the symptoms, panic, and fears. Welcome. You're right where you're meant to be. All right, welcome to today's podcast. I am so excited. I have a very special guest with me. Her name is Dr. Quincy Gideon, and she specializes in religious trauma. And I'm going to let her introduce herself, but I just want to welcome you and thank you so much for joining me on a Healthy Push podcast. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell us just a little bit, like, who the heck are you? What do you do? (laughs) I am a clinical psychologist. Um, I live in Los Angeles. I have a private practice um, in LA where we specialize in religious trauma and cult recovery. Um, We specialize in all kinds of trauma, but that's my particular specialty. So people find us because they've had some sort of religious um, traumatic past or some cult experience, and they're wanting to come to a professional that might be able to help them understand that particular kind of trauma, um, because it can be different in some ways. In some ways it can be the same, but in other ways um, it's a different traumatic experience. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I, when I stumbled upon you by a colleague of yours, I was so excited because people talk about religious trauma, right? But like not in the way that you do. And it's so exciting and refreshing to come across somebody who has experienced themselves with religious trauma, but actually have the tools, the knowledge, the, you know, all the things to help people to work through it. So let's just start off with the very basic, like what is religious trauma? So I like to define religious trauma kind of by thinking about it in two different categories. Let's start with trauma. The way that I understand trauma and the way that science understands trauma is that it is an event or or an experience that was too much, too fast, or too often, or usually some combination of those three things. So we are, our nervous systems are overwhelmed. We're not taking in all of the information. We are just taking in the fact that something terrible is happening a threat is happening, and we need to do something to survive. So all of our uh, forward brain processes turn off, and we go into a process of just trying to survive that. We typically do that with four different responses, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And those are just different ways in which we, there's a genetic component to that, there's a socialized component to that, but these are the four ways in which we typically are going to use all of our resources to try to survive and get through this event. So that is a traumatic event. Not everyone has traumatic symptoms after an event. Um, Most people, in fact, are resilient, usually at about a 70% rate. All humans have had some sort of traumatic event, but 
30% of us are going to develop some sort of post-trauma symptoms. And that just means that our we were really overwhelmed or we were super under-resourced or something was going on in our lives that created some sort of vulnerability that meant that we weren't able to overcome a trauma um, in the ways that we would hope to be able to. Okay, so that's trauma. And so we're going to hold that in mind, and then we're going to add a spiritual or religious component to it. And the reason that this gets really, really tricky is because religious trauma happens in the very communities that you're meant to be the safest in. So these are spaces that you're supposed to be really open about your flaws, about your struggles, about what you need. These are the people that are supposed to be um, the most... Uh, the biggest advocates for you or the most supportive of the things that you're going through. Um, You are interacting with a higher power or a God that is meant to love you. But what happens in religious trauma is essentially the very messages or experiences that someone has in a religious or spiritual space are traumatic. And now we've had a traumatizing event and we've dragged God or a higher power mm. into that traumatic event. And I think the question that comes up for most survivors that are in this space is now, where do we go? If the one space in this world that was supposed to be the, the best space for you ever, <laughs> the most uh, supportive, the healthiest, the space that you could be the most vulnerable, if that space is now the perpetrator of your trauma, where do you go? Right? So everything becomes unsafe in this world. And that's why, in my opinion, uh, cult abuse, spiritual abuse, religious trauma are some of the most insidious traumas out there. Mm, For sure. So do you mind defining, because I think some people might be like, hmm, I've heard about like what a cult is, but let's like really help to define because I think that can be a little ominous. It is ominous and it is a term that has lost its zing or its power because we use it so much in our society. So, right, if there's like a face wash that you use, like we say it has a cult following or if there is some, right, we've we've overused the term and therefore it's lost some of its luster. So I will just say that research is a little bit unclear. We are working very hard in the research community to try to define really well, but the best that we can do right now is theorize. And it's generally some sort of group, although sometimes it can just be a relationship. We can talk about bad vegan and we can talk about the tender swindler if you'd like, because that was a cult of one. Um, But it's generally some sort of relational space that someone is dedicating their life to, and there's usually some big features that happen. There's typically some sort of charismatic and demanding leader. There's usually some high control element of either your resources, your emotions, your decision-making. Most of your life starts to become really controlled. Um, You're not able to leave these groups easily. Um, Even if they're touting that you can leave these groups, typically there's some sort of element um, that makes them very hard to leave. And someone, my personal definition of what a cult is, is that it is some group that demands some type of suffering as some moral 
check mark that you need in order to say that you're a good person, that you're going to heaven, that God loves you. Mm-hmm. That becomes very culty for me. Gotcha. That's so helpful. Thank you for explaining that because I think it is, you're exactly right. It gets the term gets thrown around so much that it's like, what does it even mean? So, yes. And there's like whole podcasts that are dedicated to this that literally every week they're like, does this mean it's a cult? Does this mean it's a cult? (laughs) It is that confusing because it requires so much psychological and manipulation of a person to be able to um, withstand the trauma that they're going through in that group and to not be able to get out that we are constantly sort of um, redefining, bringing in other features. We're like, oh yeah, maybe that is a part of cult-like thinking too, or perhaps that's part of a cult dynamic. So um, the best that we can do is look at the groups that have been cultish (laughs) and say, what did they have? How was that harmful? And then how can we apply that to other groups that are forming at this very moment and try to understand understand what is what is happening for those people in those groups so that we can try to help to get them out um, yeah. when it becomes appropriate. Right. So let's talk about what are some signs, because I think one of the bigger things is that you sometimes could have or are experiencing, experiencing religious trauma and you don't even know that you're experiencing it. Mm-hmm. So like, what are some signs or some red flags per se that you might be experiencing or have experienced religious trauma? I like to think about religious trauma from a diagnostic perspective of what we would look like it, look for in any sort of trauma. So there's going to be an activated nervous system, increased startle responses, nightmares or reliving the event in your own head, a hard time getting away from it, um, really deep emotional experiences about the event. And then of course, about yourself in the aftermath of the event. So that's just sort of general trauma. That's what happens in the aftermath of trauma. But if you think about religious trauma as trauma, but overly spiritualized and dragging God into the midst of this sort of experience, then you can see how it plays out just a tiny bit differently. So um, one of the things that we look for in religious trauma is delayed emotional development. This is probably one of the paramount things that I see most often is that when someone is in a really highly restrictive group or a cult, or they're in a really demanding religious experience that has become traumatizing, they did not get to have some of the normal emotional experiences that we would expect for people to have to suffer through, to learn from, to grow, to increase their sense of independence, to um, understand themselves, to increase their sense of self-esteem, right? And self-confidence. When you're in a highly restrictive group, you don't make decisions. You follow rules, Mm -hmm. right? When you're in a religious, um, traumatizing environment, you're just trying to avoid the next trauma, You're not taking in a dating situation and thinking like, how do I feel? And what, what is this emotion and how can I articulate that? You're thinking, did I follow the rules? Am I a bad person? Why can't I follow the rules? Why can't they follow the rules? What's going to happen when someone finds out? What's the consequences of that? 
we've we've totally missed the opportunity for some sort of emotional development, right? Yeah. So so that creates a stunting of that experience or a repression of that experience. And I just find that folks that are coming out of these spaces will sort of look around the world and they'll be like, how do you even know who to date? How do you even know how to function in you know a job space? Well, yeah, we know some of that because we've had the painful, beautiful human experience of sort of walking through our mistakes and learning from those. And those in really highly restrictive groups are not going to have that. So that's number one. And that's sort of different from, but maybe not so different. We can see how that would play out in other traumas, right? Mm-hmm. And um, especially in highly restrictive traumatic environments like family homes or whatever, like it could play out that way. But in general, religious trauma is going to have that feature. Um, number two, extremely low self-esteem and extreme feelings of guilt. Those two things kind of walk hand in hand in a person's experience. So again, they did not have the human experience of sort of walking through and making mistakes and learning from it and trying to figure out what those are about. The lesson was you were bad, you were wrong, God is mad at you, God is spiteful. There's like really big eternal um, consequences for the decisions that you've made. And so what a person is not left with any sort of like, well, let me just work through that. They're left with, I am a bad person, shame. I cannot trust myself, low self-esteem. I, no one else can trust me, low self-confidence. And um, I should feel guilty for all of those things. I should actually just feel guilty for living, for breathing, mm-hmm. for showing up into a, in a space, for, for existing in any way. Yeah. Wow. Those, I mean, so it's so interesting and I'm not going to make this about me or dive into any of this personally, because I want to hear your personal experience, but I'm like here nodding my head because Mm. so much of this resonates with me because I grew up in a Pentecostal religion Mm -hmm. where like when you said a demanding religious experience, Mm -hmm. I was just like, oh my gosh, that's like, those are the words that, you know, I was kind of looking for. And you know, I grew up with a whole ton of fear and a whole ton of like, you know, God is spiteful. And if you don't do this, or if you do that, like this will happen. And all the messages surrounding like hell and just like everything equaled, you're going to hell essentially. Mm -hmm. So I'm so curious, can we talk about your experience? Because I know that it'll help to define too, like, what can this actually look like in a person's real life? Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a very conservative part of the Southern Baptist Church um, or Southern Baptist Convention is what some people call it in the South. I grew up in Texas. Um, I grew up in a lot of small towns. My dad was a football coach, so we moved around a lot. And although my parents identified as Christians and um, certainly felt like it, it still do, still feel like it's a very important part of one's lived experience, part of what was going on in the moving around was just trying to find community. Um, we were just trying to um, get into some sort of spaces where uh, my brother and I had a place to go on the weekend. My mom felt support while my dad was working a lot. And that almost immediately there was some sense of camaraderie or community in these very small towns where no one didn't go to church. Like it just like wasn't an option, right? In those spaces. So 
I, I'm just pointing that out because this is one of the things that happens. Um, no one, there's a very wise man out there that once said, no one joins a cult. They join a movement, they join an idea, they join a community. And that joining, I'm putting scare quotes around that, that joining typically happens with some sort of vulnerability. And I would say that that was the vulnerability that my family was sort of experiencing at that time. And the luck of the draw is that sometimes, depending on leadership, depending on the culture within those small little communities, depending on the very people that are involved, sometimes uh, those churches were on the healthier spectrum. I would never in a million years call them completely healthy because they were homophobic, they were misogynistic, they were problematic in very deep and troubling ways, um, but they were healthier. They were perhaps not as demanding. Um, they didn't uh, scowl at you or scorn you for not um, showing up to a particular Bible study, right? They were a little bit lower on the demanding um, end. But then we found ourselves in a church um, in my high school years, and I had already collected quite a few deeply problematic um, kind of understandings or lessons along the way about um, how the world felt about me because I was a girl becoming a woman, how my sexuality had to function, um, what my job was in the world as far as protecting men from themselves, but never protecting myself. Like those things had been deeply woven into me and they didn't, we didn't even need to have a traumatic response. The traumatic message of how little I meant in these sort of spaces or how small I was on the totem pole with so many people that had quote leadership over me was always already well established at that time. And so we moved into my high school experience and joined a church. And I would say that that was um, the beginning of a long history of trauma. So everything was well established. I can pick stuff out of my childhood that makes me squirm to think about the messages that it sent me and how um, I was already sort of a well-foundationed sort of person in order to really sort of step into this traumatic space and take it seriously and not be able to protect myself against it. Um, but I would say that in my high school, um, experience and on into college. And then afterwards, when I um, married a man and it was very traumatic and it was um, very supported by the church, that there was just a, about 15 years of experience there where um, there was sexual abuse. Um, there was the coercion of um, minors to have sex with church leadership. There was um, constant shame um, around who people were in the world. I We were overly policed. Anytime any sort of um, any girl in the youth group and a woman kind of later on had any sort of leadership potential. Um, she was typically um, character assassinated. So um, things that 
didn't even matter and weren't even true um, were typically used against her lest she become some sort of leader in that space. Um, there, I mean, the list goes on, but that was probably the beginning of it of uh, like, I can sort of, okay, that happened. And then a few months later that happened and this was my response and this is how I made sense of that. Um, but that didn't happen in a vacuum that was sort of well established before I walked into this really unhealthy space. And that's probably the lesson here. And and people ask me that a lot. Like, do you mean that religion is bad across the board? Um, I would say, number one, religion has some major issues that have to be addressed. So in that way, it's problematic, like without question in my mind. Um, but then it's it's not just about how the whole functions. It's about how the whole creates vulnerabilities in people that they get into really toxic, um, insular communities within that very religion. And they have already been groomed for Mm -hmm. really horrific things happening to them because of the overall gestalt of the religious organization. Yeah. Uh, I know that people will definitely be able to resonate with Mm -hmm. your story and, Thank you for sharing that. I know I had a similar experience. And so what are some things that like helped you to start to, to heal? And I'm sure part of that was like actually having an awareness of what was happening. What did, what did that look like? Well, I will say that, um, I'll tell you what the two things are that I think most religious trauma survivors need. And then I'll kind of tell you my story and like how that played out. So I, we actually have a, um, religious trauma and cult recovery membership and for folks that are trying to get out, um, of these spaces. And we created it with two ideas in mind, because this seems to be the thing that most people circle around. Um, most people need some sort of education around what is happening to them because the church or the religion or the cult is really intent on them not getting that information. So there's going to be restrictions on which books you can read. And whether that is a literal burning of books in the backyard of a pastor's house, and sometimes that does happen, mostly it happens in shame. Like why, you know, how much time have you spent in the Bible and which, um, you know, which books are you reading that are, you know, teaching you how to be a better servant, scare quotes here, servant for God, um, which, so, so the ability to actually have access or to read without any qualms, without any shame, without any guilt about the amount of time that you're spending reading other sort of books is really diminished in that way. And so really in that way, like, okay, their job is done. If you don't have access to information, if you don't have access to education, if you are, if you feel guilty and shameful for even considering it, then they don't have to work very hard to keep you in a traumatizing shame loop, right? In their own congregation, because you're, you don't have access or you don't even feel free to go out there and find out information and experience other people outside of the community without calling them sinners or unbelievers or um, outsiders or, you know, whatever. Um, And so education becomes the thing um, that typically helps people start to put together the pieces of like, 
oh my gosh, that happened to me. And oh my gosh, that happens to people. And oh, that's gaslighting. And that's narcissism. And, um, you know, oh, that's a high control group. Oh, you mean other teenagers got to do things differently? It's just like a whole new world, right? So education becomes a huge part of it. And then the second part is support. And support is probably the trickiest thing because the last group you were in was pretty traumatizing. So joining anything else um, tends to be a reminder of like every bad thing <laughs> that, you know, could potentially happen. And so your radar is high. You're worried very much that something bad is going to happen. And that can be a really scary thing. So support is both hard to find because you don't know who's safe and it's hard to sustain um, because it really does require that someone is aware of religious trauma and cult environments um, in order to make sure that that's not happening again, which I talk about all the time. Like part of what we talk about when people join our membership is like, I realize the irony of me asking you to join a a (laughs) safe and protected and insular group that people don't have access to unless I've screened them, right? I realize the irony of that, but also how do we create safety? How do we let you talk openly about your experiences? How do you know who you're with? How do you ask questions without us doing some part of that? So I just try to talk about it often. (laughs) Like I realize the irony and look at us like, um, you know, I say, I will like send the group emails and I'm like, um, I'm about to say something really culty. And then I'm about to tell you how I'm going to prevent it from being culty. Right. Like, (laughs) because it has to be protected in that way. Yeah. So how did you like get the education? Right. Like how did, because I know, you know, for me, it happened in therapy that Mm -hmm. I even was able to recognize that I had some religious trauma. I honestly, you know, my mom was taught this stuff from her parents and like, it just got passed down and passed down and sort of, you know, my mom had that never questioning and just like following along. And so, you know, that's what I was taught as a kid. And then, you know, my mom sort of outgrew and started to learn and educate herself. And then it, you know, trickled down to me and through therapy, I was like, oh my goodness, like, no wonder why I grew up with intense fear, intense anxiety. It all makes sense. But I think for me, without having that, you know, therapist that said, hey, I think some of this stuff is what contributes to you having so much fear and anxiety, like I wouldn't have been able to connect those dots. So like, what did that look like for you getting the education and the support? Well, I think that this is not always everyone's path, but it is, it is a significant part of people's paths. There's usually some event that makes you question everything Mm -hmm. that the group has ever told you. And that starts this uh, questioning process that I think is really detrimental to your connection to the cult or the religion. And so mine was that I had um, followed all of the rules. I had the permission, and I'm not using that ironically, I had the permission and the support of my church leadership to uh, marry a man that touted the same things that we were all, we were on the same page and we were a part of accountability groups so that we never spent too much time alone. We were, um, abstaining from any sort of physical relationship. We were, we were following every single rule and having to report to people 
um, red ding, 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 red flag, high control, having to report to people what we were doing in our free time and just to quote, make sure that we were following all of the rules and well within the bounds of what um, we had um, agreed to. Um, this uh, like abstinence and purity um, agreement that happens in the courtships. I'm using lots of like insider language here for those listening to the courtship that we had started. We don't call them dating. Um, we don't, there's no physical um, affection or contact before marriage. So we followed all of the rules and um, we got married. And uh, the night of the wedding, I knew that something went terribly wrong. There, there was a couple of things that had happened before the wedding, um, and I've talked about a, a, those a lot in other spaces. But the quick rundown is, is that um, I, uh, there was evidence that had sort of come forward um, after we got married that he was not straight, and my own personal feelings about that was that that was completely okay, but it wasn't okay. For me to be bamboozled into a marriage with someone who didn't actually want me, they just wanted me to be their beard. And so um, I knew immediately that something was wrong, but I couldn't figure out what was wrong. Um, things sort of played out. He was a bit of a bear backed in a corner, which I have a lot of compassion about. Um, I can't imagine what that many years of of repression and, um, self-hatred and, uh, you know, internalized homophobia was like for him. And I, so I have compassion when I look back at it, but it was a very, very traumatizing experience for me to feel so rejected, to feel like I was doing something wrong, to feel like there was a list of things that you are supposed to do as a woman. And I felt as a wife, I should say. And I just felt like I, I was never going to get it right. I was never going to, um, because he did not like me. So how, how do you like show someone affection? And then also it started becoming like, it felt like I was, um, disrespecting myself by continuing to kind of pander after this. So that combination of like something ain't right. Um, I am begging for things that I feel terrible begging for. I don't want to beg for affection. Like I, I'll just do my own thing, but that's not marriage. So now am I failing at marriage? Is it something that I'm doing because I'm not trying hard enough? There was just some combination of all of that that reached a fever pitch where I went through his phone. I found evidence of my very suspicions and the relationship came crashing down the aftermath, the, the relationship was traumatic for me. The aftermath was far more traumatizing than anything I had ever been through up into that point. So, um, the way in which the church that we were attending knew that this was going on and, um, actively counseled him to hide it from me. So there was an entire group of men and women because the men in the men's group had gone home to share it with their partners and their wives. And there was a whole sort of group of people that we were hanging out with on a weekly basis that knew that this was going on. And I was the one in the dark, but mm -hmm. it was my relationship. It was just very unsettling 
to look back and think like, how, when did people find out? What were they actively doing to hide it from me? Why is church leadership, why is he so important and I'm not? Like, why is his well-being being protected here, but mine isn't? The smear campaign that happened after that, because I um, spoke honestly about my experiences, the I ran a nonprofit at the time, the number of donors that were contacted and told lies about me, um, and I lost so much so many donations and revenues and opportunities and projects and things like that, because the amount of lies that had been said in order to discount my own story. And, you know, this sort of stuff happens in intimate relationships. It's horrifying. It's, it's awful, but mine happened. Like there's a period at the end of that sentence. And then it also happened inextricably from the religious community that we were a part of. And once the religious community became the perpetrators of almost all of the trauma, like no one else was doing that. (laughs) I was in my doctorate at the time. I was um, meeting with professors. I was taught, I was meeting new people like in our building, just trying to have like a friend because it felt like the whole world was against me. Um, I, no one had that response to my story. It was always care and concern and compassion, but the church and, and those that identified as Christians that had sort of a hard line on what was appropriate and what was inappropriate, those were the folks that treated me the poorest. And that's when my trauma became religious trauma. It had already in so many other ways, but it played out in a very particular way for me that was horrifying. Yeah. That is horrifying. I'm so sorry. I mean, these things though, right? I'm so glad that you're sharing this and being vulnerable because there are so many people that, you know, have or are experiencing similar situations and experiences and maybe don't know. And maybe this is like a moment for them, right? That they Mm -hmm. hear this and then say, hey, like, (laughs) you know, this stuff isn't maybe quote Mm -hmm. normal. um, And maybe I should do some digging into this. So, I'm curious, like, what would you tell somebody right now who thinks that they might be struggling with religious trauma or knows that they're struggling and is like, what, what do I even do? Like, where do I start? What can I do? I think that everyone should probably start with some sort of safety assessment because, um, I might've felt trapped in my religious experience. And I was in so many ways, like, you know, to lose your job, to lose your nonprofit, to lose your husband, to lose your every friend, like that is trapping. And so many people that are listening to this might have that experience. And there were moments that I thought that my physical safety was being threatened, but it was never actually threatened. I just worried that it would be. So that is a different experience from people that might be in a group where, um, say the Scientologist in the room, they're going to be stalked. They're going to be followed. They are going to be harassed. They are going to be scared. And so I think before anything happens, if you're starting to suspect that this might be 
um, something that you're going through. It's very hard for a person to heal from their trauma when they're still swimming in the toxic swimming pool. And so in some ways you might just need a little bit of a break, but you need to, to assess for safety first. Can you get out? Um, what would that look like? If What would it be like to just give yourself space? If all of those start sending off alarm bells of real threats of safety, because trauma survivors are always going to feel like their safety is being threatened, but real, like you can kind of put pen to paper to it. Like these are the ways in which my physical safety would be, um, would be threatened. You need to find a professional to help you walk through that, come up with some sort of plan. Um, that's what I do all day, every day, and and can help people get connected to someone in their state if that's something that they're interested in. But a professional really needs to have eyes on it because someone that specializes in this can kind of help people anticipate things that they might not have known because you've never left a group before, right? And now you are. So it, that this is the same as divorce. You've never had a divorce before. So no wonder this is overwhelming, right? And, and you don't understand all of the laws. Like, like, you know, if you were on your fourth one, we'd have other questions or concerns. So it's normal, right, for you to be right. pensive and, and worried and anxious about all of that. If there's no real physical threat to your safety, but you're sort of hearing all of the words around how your livelihood or your well-being or your eternal uh, destination is somehow going to be threatened in you taking a break. I would still say to see some sort of professional, but if you're not ready to do that, or if your physical safety is not being um, harmed or threatened, then I think that the education can start now. And maybe that's you picking up books that might be able to speak to your experience. Um, maybe it's um, you need a few steps before that. Maybe you don't quite you're not quite ready for like religious trauma books or books on narcissism and emotional manipulation. Maybe you just need to read a fiction book that used to be off limits, like where there's like a like pearl clutching a sex scene. And it like, maybe you just need to start there to see what the world is like on the other side of this. Just see what it's like. Do people walk around with a little bit more ease than you? Okay. Ask yourself that question. Why? Why do they walk around with ease? Why are they not so worried about hell, but I am right? Like, why do I, why does my leader say that they're the only ones that has access to God in this way? Huh? What's that about? Why do other people not walk around worried about that? Right. And in, inevitably your old um, socialization, your old indoctrination is going to come up and kick up, but it's just an opportunity to like, look at it, right. Instead of it, accepting it hook, line and sinker, just look at it. So my suggestion would be exposure. Just expose yourself to things, expose yourself to music. Uh, what's it like to go to a concert that's not a Christian concert um, or, you know, whatever, like what, what would that be like? What would it be like to, um, to make friends with people that are not a part of your community? Like, does that make you feel horribly shameful? Why, why is yeah. that right? To just expose yourself and start asking yourself questions. I love that. I've never heard it explained that way. And I think that that can be so helpful, right? Because it starts to give you these insights when you're curious of like, hmm, why is this? Why do I feel this way? Or, you know, what's making me feel this way? That's, I love how you explained that. So 
I love your Instagram because you share like really amazing reels and they're super educational and helpful. And like just the way that you present things is so helpful. So if this resonates with people, like where can they find and connect with you if they want some more support? I I spend a lot of time on Instagram and my (laughs) handle is Dr. Quincy with two E's at the end. Um, so you can find me there and the link in that bio will kind of send you to all of the different places. I will say that we have worked very hard to curate a very safe and religious trauma focused, um, membership. And again, like it's culty to even call it a membership, but (laughs) if anyone can come up with any other words, I'm all ears. (laughs) Like try, try a descriptor. I can't find one. Um, but if that scene, if someone is in this, like, wait a minute, is this something that I've gone through? What does she mean? She just listed out all of my experiences, but I've never heard it like that. And you're really in any stage, whether you're just trying to figure out what's going on, whether you've been trying to get out for years and you just feel totally helpless and overwhelmed, whether you are in some stage of deconstruction, which we talk about a lot um, in the membership, this is a space that we work really hard to be like, what are your questions? Great. Let me like create a lot of content around that so that you can just educate yourself. There's a quick and easy, um, resource list. Like if you, if you don't even want to go on Amazon and be like cult recovery, like what (laughs) I got, I got your back. Like I have that list. Um, because this is, this is a tough space to be in. And I, my attempt at creating this is just to, um, honor my younger self that needed something Mm -hmm. like this, that was alone and scared and ostracized and totally unsupported. And the very um, church or religion that was doing this was also the very religion that my parents are still and my brother are still a part of to this day. So there's there was always going to be this sense of separation, like they don't get it. Because if they were to admit that these things happened, they would have to take very seriously why they continue to participate in these groups. And that's hard. That's hard for anyone to do. And so it was always going to be a lonely path. And I think that's what so many religious trauma survivors feel on this end of it is like, is, is this pain easier or better? The staying in the, the living with it, easier or better in some ways than the loneliness and the fear and the anxiety on the other side. Yeah. It's a hard hard space to be in. So hard. And I'm so glad, like I said, that you're doing this work because it's going to benefit so many people. So thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for sharing and thank you for providing some really great insights and tips. My pleasure. This was fun. (laughs) It was so fun. And before I end this episode, I want to mention that I'd really appreciate it if you shared this episode or any others with somebody who you feel could benefit from what I share here. You sharing these episodes is what helps me to reach and support others who need it. And if you have an extra minute in your day today, I'd also really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. I read every single review and this too is what helps me to help more people to heal and overcome. All right, until next time, friend, keep taking healthy action. I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Healthy Push. 
If you want more, head on over to ahealthypush.com for the show notes and lots more tips, tools, and inspiration that will support your recovery. And if you're hoping for me to cover a certain topic, be sure to join my Instagram community at a healthy push and let me know in the comments what you want to hear next.